This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. On January 21st, 1993, viewers of Larry King Live tuned in to find an unexpected guest. It was the evening after Inauguration Day. One would expect to find a politician or a pundit, but instead, King turned to an unassuming young man from Florida, David Renard, who had filed a lawsuit against cell phone manufacturer NEC and wireless carrier GTE MobileNet. The allegation that their cell phones had initiated or accelerated the growth of his wife's fatal brain tumor. It was the first time in the United States that a claim was made linking cell phones and cancer. His wife, Susan Ellen Reynard, had been diagnosed with a malignant astrocytoma, a brain cancer that occurs in about 6,000 adults in America each year, according to the New York Times. She died in 1992, just short of her 34th birthday. An MRI brain scan of Susan Renard's tumor revealed it to be a hazy line crossing the left side of her brain, near her left ear. As David Renard told Larry King, the line followed the exact angle of her cell phone's antenna. But looking for answers in shadowy MRI scans is like looking for shapes in the clouds. We can see what we want to see. So we must ask ourselves, is there something there or... Is it only coincidence? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>
Many of you have asked us how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. This is our second episode about cell phones. Last week, we broke down the official story, how cell phones came to be, how they work, and the few studies that have been done on whether they're as safe as manufacturers say. Today, we'll be diving into the most prominent conspiracy theories relating to cell phones and their potential risks. Conspiracy theory number one, cell phones cause brain tumors and other adverse health effects. Conspiracy theory number two, the microwave technology used in cell phones can be weaponized in the form of directed energy weapons, like lasers, heat rays, and particle beams. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, Cell phones are part of a government-sponsored mind control program. The companies that manufacture cellular phones and those that provide cellular service say they'll spend 15 to $25 million to address allegations that cell phones can cause brain cancer. Critics claim the risk is radio frequency radiation from the antennas. Cellular Telecommunications Industry Association President Thomas Wheeler says they've already reviewed lots of studies. And none of these studies suggest any relationship between cellular phones and cancer. Wheeler says the industry will review all the existing studies, thousands of them, and conduct new ones in a three to five year process to identify any such health risk from cell phones. David Melendi, Washington. This might sound like a modern news clip, but it's actually from 1993. Concerns about the safety of cell phones span back a quarter century and still have people wondering today. As we mentioned in the opening, David Renard's lawsuit in 1992 was the first allegation that cell phones might cause brain tumors. Unfortunately, three years after he filed the claim, the Florida court dismissed the suit, claiming that the uncertainty of the evidence and incomplete epidemiological studies made it impossible to untangle cause from coincidence. Over 20 years later, the truth still remains elusive. So let's start with conspiracy theory number one. Can the radiation emitted by cell phones actually cause cancer or other adverse health effects? Despite his lawsuit being dismissed, Reynard is not alone. There are countless others who claim to have been adversely affected by cell phones. Take, for instance, Alan Marks of Lafayette, California. As a real estate agent, Marks was constantly talking on his cell phone at least two hours a day. In May 2008, Mark suffered a grand mal seizure in the middle of the night. Six weeks later, he underwent surgery to remove a large cancerous tumor from the right side of his brain. His doctor suspected Mark's cell phone use might have been related to the tumor. Mark successfully petitioned then San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom to pass the country's first cell phone right to know ordinance, requiring all retailers to display the amount of radiation each device emits. But of course, the CTIA filed a lawsuit to block its enforcement. As you'll remember from last episode, the Cellular Telecommunications Industry Association, now called the Cellular Telecommunications and Internet Association, or CTIA, is the cellular industry lobbying group. Since there's been little government interest in researching or regulating cell phones, the CTIA has been responsible for funding most cellular research. Some of the group's former heads have gone on to run the FCC, 
which oversees cell phone regulation. To put it simply, cell phone manufacturers and service providers are more or less in charge of researching and enforcing regulations on their own products. Around the same time as Alan Marks was petitioning the San Francisco mayor, a similar incident was happening a little bit to the south. Rich Farver, a teaching assistant at San Diego State University, died in 2008 from a form of brain cancer known as glioblastoma multiform. At the time of his diagnosis, his doctor, Dr. V. Tantuwaya, told him his cell phone was the culprit. Whether his doctor was right, it's hard to say. But after his death, Farver's mother discovered something even more shocking. Researching on her own, she found out there'd been a cluster of cancer diagnosis on the SDSU campus, which she posited was due to a nearby cell phone tower. When she took a radio frequency meter to her son's old dorm to measure the radiation, the reading was off the scale. SDSU denies any responsibility, and the cell tower continues to stand to this day. The courts refuse to get involved until there's some conclusive scientific evidence. There have been many studies, but few could be called conclusive. The first major study was known as Interphone. Beginning in 2000, it polled over 5,000 people across 13 countries about their cell phone use and health problems. But years after the study concluded, the results are still in question. In fact, the 50 scientists who conducted the study couldn't even agree on how the results should be interpreted. The debate actually delayed the release of the study's results for over four years. The short answer is they found no increased rate of cancer, except for a slight increase in the top 10% who used their cell phones the most, that is, for more than 30 minutes per day over a 10-year period. Remember, this was in 2000, when cell phones were still relatively rare. Some users reported using their phones more than five hours a day, which at the time seemed implausible, so that data was thrown out entirely. It makes you wonder how our constant cell phone use today might be affecting us. But this is just one example of the criticism the study has faced. The research was based on interviewing people as to the amount of their cell phone usage, also known as self-reporting, which is notoriously untrustworthy. This is because, consciously or unconsciously, people aren't very good at accurately remembering or reporting their own activities. Also, the sample size and duration of the study, it's argued, was too small and too short. Negative results of long-term cell phone use wouldn't have yet presented themselves. But there have been other, larger, and more scientifically rigorous studies. The Danish cohort study compared all of the people in Denmark with a cell phone subscription between 1982 and 1995, which totaled about 700,000 people, to those without a subscription to look for a possible increase in brain tumors. In ensuing studies, no link was found between cell phone use and tumors. Also, there was the Million Women study, surveying nearly 800,000 women in the UK in the late 90s. It looked at the risk of developing brain tumors over a seven-year period. But again, no link to cell phone use was found. And in 2003, cell phones went to court. 
A federal appeals court in Richmond has sided with cell phone makers in a legal battle over whether use of the mobile phones caused a Maryland doctor's cancer. A three-judge panel of the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with a lower court, which barred testimony from a medical expert and threw out an $800 million lawsuit against Motorola, Verizon, and other phone makers. Dr. Christopher Newman and his wife had sued the cell phone makers three years ago, claiming that Newman's cell phone use over a six-year period led to a cancerous tumor behind his right ear. Zini Sampson, Richmond, Virginia. Well, maybe we can take a look at the science behind all of this and get to the bottom of it ourselves. First, how does radiation itself cause cancer? It's something we all seem to take for granted but may not really understand. Often when we talk about radiation, people immediately think of things like X-rays or nuclear reactors. But the spectrum of electromagnetic radiation is broad. On one end of the spectrum, it's what's called ionizing radiation, like those X-rays or nuclear reactors. These forms of radiation are so powerful they can penetrate barriers like the skull and the brain. On their way through the body, these rays deposit powerful bursts of energy kill cells and, most notably, cause mutations, which can result in cancer. On the other end of the spectrum is non-ionizing radiation, the kind used by microwave ovens, cellular phones, and light bulbs. These rays can warm cells, boil water, and stimulate chemical reactions, but they lack the power to strip electrons away from atoms or damage DNA, and therefore cannot simply or directly cause cancer in the same way ionizing radiation can. Maybe not simply or directly, but it could be affecting us in more roundabout ways. There are two key factors to consider here, frequency and power. As we covered last episode, cell phones broadcast at frequencies ranging from 450 to 2,000 megahertz, but 800 or 900 megahertz is the most common. These frequencies can cause a thermal effect, causing water molecules to vibrate and heat up, the same process employed by a microwave oven. So if cell phones were to cause tissue damage, it would be by basically boiling the water molecules in your body. But we need to consider the second factor, power. Microwave ovens emit 700 watts of power compared to the 0.2 watts emitted by a cell phone at peak operation. At that rate, it would take a cell phone 241 days to heat the body mass of a 200-pound man by one degree. And let's not forget, human beings have metabolic processes to alleviate overheating, which this calculation doesn't take into account. But perhaps the thermal effect of cell phone radiation can affect us in other ways we don't fully understand yet. In a recent study, scientists dosed rats with RF radiation, the same type used by cell phones, at either 1.5, 3, or 6 watts of radiation per kilogram of body weight. The lowest dose is about the same as the FCC's limit for cell phone radiation emissions, which is 1.6 watts per kilogram. The animals were exposed to radiation for nine hours a day for two years. The results? The rats that were exposed to higher levels of radiation also exhibited higher rates of cancer. But the evidence linking cancer with the lower doses at a similar level to cell phones is less strong. Here's public health epidemiologist Dr. George Carlo on the subject. We have been looking for problems and we have not found indications of problems. So we have not found data 
in the existing literature that supports the contention that cellular phones would be a cause of uh, human cancer. There are some that claim fault with the study, saying the level of power used was far beyond what a cell phone is capable of, but it does show that RF radiation, a form of non-ionizing radiation, actually can cause cancer under certain circumstances. Perhaps the long-term effects have yet to reveal themselves. And perhaps cancer isn't the only thing we have to be worried about. Coming up, we'll take a look at the other ways cell phones might be affecting our health. Now, back to the story. Despite a litany of lawsuits from individuals claiming their cancer was caused by cell phones, scientific studies still haven't proven a connection. But that doesn't mean that cell phones couldn't be affecting us in other ways. Short of cancer, there's a long list of other health effects that could plausibly be linked to cell phones. Headaches, depression, insomnia, memory loss, fatigue. Together, these symptoms have been described as microwave sickness. Take, for example, the story of Steve Cooper. In the early 2000s, his health was steadily declining. He was chronically fatigued, suffered from migraine headaches, and more than anything, seemed to be in a haze. He spent most of his time in bed, but doctors couldn't find anything wrong with him. After years of living with these symptoms, Steve visited a neurotoxicologist who did a few tests and delivered the diagnosis. Toxic encephalopathy, brain damage from toxic exposure. Steve was a technician, spending 40 or more hours a week building microwave amplifiers for cell phone towers. For the past 16 years, Steve's brain had been bombarded by RF radiation. Despite finally having a diagnosis, there was little that could be done. The disorder was progressive. They were only told to monitor his symptoms and to be on the lookout for the development of a brain tumor, which the doctors believed was inevitable. But that never happened to Steve. After a decade of suffering, he chose to end his own life in June of 2007 at the age of 48. Now, Steve Cooper's is a unique case. Not everyone is subject to the kind of chronic radiation exposure that he was, but his symptoms are being felt by a growing number of people. Those who claim to suffer from electromagnetic hypersensitivity syndrome, or EHS. These people claim to be able to feel the electromagnetic radiation all around us. Cell phone signals, Wi-Fi, microwave ovens, even the low-level electromagnetic fields created by electrical wiring in walls. This has pushed them into remote areas, living Spartan lifestyles, armed with RF meters, interacting with the outside world only when absolutely necessary. Scientists remain unconvinced that electromagnetic radiation is the root of the problem. There's no scientific reason to believe that anyone could or should be affected so strongly. But for sufferers of EHS, like Steve Cooper, their symptoms are very real. They're not making it up. Double-blind tests have proven that EHS is a real syndrome, and the international health community has recognized it as such. The only thing that's yet to be proven is whether the symptoms are really linked to electromagnetic fields. EHS has been attributed to other environmental factors, or it could be what's known as a reverse placebo effect. 
It may be that these people simply believe cell phones, Wi-Fi, or other electromagnetic radiation is harmful, and the symptoms manifest themselves as a result. Just like gluten, only about 1% of the population has celiac disease, a condition that makes it difficult to digest gluten. But a 2015 poll found that one in five people avoid eating gluten. There's no evidence that gluten is harmful for the vast majority of people. But gluten has been so maligned by recent diet trends that many people who have never shown symptoms of gluten intolerance are suddenly reporting that eating bread makes them feel sick. Similarly, people may believe that cell phones are harming them, whether by causing cancer or other symptoms, despite scant scientific evidence. Despite all of the personal stories and anecdotal evidence, I have to agree there is little evidence to support a direct link between cell phones and cancer. We may not have all the answers, but we have many more questions. If cell phones were safe, why did U.S. pharmaceutical companies dump millions into researching a drug that would counteract the symptoms of microwave sickness? It's hard to believe companies would develop a drug to alleviate symptoms that simply didn't exist. Well, as we said earlier, the symptoms of EHS are definitely real. It's the link to cell phone radiation that's still in dispute. If cell phones were safe, why is the same form of non-ionizing radiation being used in medical settings to heat and destroy deep bodily tissue? Medical professionals have determined that radiation frequencies between 750 and 900 megahertz, the exact same range utilized by cell phones, are best suited to deep tissue penetration and cell destruction without causing pain. Okay, that throws a hitch into the idea that non-ionizing radiation is harmless. But as we talked about before, power is just as important as frequency. There's no evidence the level of radiation used in cell phones is capable of causing that kind of cell damage. If cell phones were safe, why did Lloyd's of London, the world's largest insurer, decline to protect cell phone companies against health-related claims? In 2010, Lloyd's emerging risk team stated, quote, The danger with EMF is that, like asbestos, the exposure insurers face is underestimated and could grow exponentially and be with us for many years, end quote. All right, the point of that comparison is that EMF hasn't been studied thoroughly enough to disprove any adverse health effects. But that doesn't prove that there are adverse health effects. We simply don't know enough yet to make a definite statement either way. Which is the only point I'm trying to make. Although there's no clear evidence cell phones are harmful, or at least not yet, I think there's enough evidence that they might cause harm to support some skepticism. Well, Carter, I have to agree with you here. Our world has developed and changed at an incredible pace, and it's plausible we may not yet completely understand how these new technologies might be affecting us. And when you consider the corporations and lobbyists that stand to gain from the cellular industry's success, I think it's reasonable to be suspicious. The argument over cell phone safety has been waged back and forth for decades, and it currently seems to be moving back toward the side of urging caution. Just this year, an Italian man brought another lawsuit claiming that his cell phone use caused his non-cancerous brain tumor, and he won. Though his suit was against the state social security agency and not the cell phone manufacturer, it sets a legal precedent that cell phones possibly can cause brain tumors. 
If we're urging our listeners to be more cautious, here are some ways people can protect themselves. The easiest and most effective solution is simply moving the phone away from your head. That means using speakerphone or Bluetooth headsets. Just six inches drastically reduces the amount of radiation you may be exposed to. And certain specialized cell phone cases have been shown to effectively mitigate radiation. But the best advice is to simply limit your talk time. The most radiation is emitted when calls are being made. And even when you're not using your phone, keep it away from you. It's still emitting RF radiation, though at much lower levels. It's been shown that a cell phone, even when charging on a nightstand, can directly affect our brain waves as we sleep. So, our consensus on theory number one, do cell phones cause brain tumors or other health problems? Personally, I'd rate this theory a 6 out of 10. Sure, there's little hard science that proves the connection, but there is enough circumstantial evidence that would urge caution. Well, I agree. I'm going to take a conservative position here and knock a few points off your score. I'd call it a 4 out of 10. While I don't believe that cell phones are directly causing brain tumors, I do believe there could be other ancillary effects we don't yet understand. There's still a fairly new technology, and there hasn't been time for a longitudinal study. We've talked a lot today about whether or not the technology used in cell phones might inadvertently be causing harm. But what if it was being applied with the intention of causing harm? That brings us to conspiracy theory number two. Can the underlying technology of cell phones be weaponized? And if so, have these weapons already been deployed without our knowledge? Well, the answer to the first question is easy. Yes, so-called directed energy weapons have been in active development for decades. Directed energy is a catch-all term for a ranged weapon that focuses energy of any kind. So that encompasses lasers, particle beams, and more. One of the earliest rumored uses of a directed energy weapon is Archimedes' mirrors. The legend goes that during the siege of Syracuse, between 212 and 214 BC, Archimedes created a series of polished mirrors to focus the sun's rays at the invading Roman navy and set their ships alight. The story was originally recorded by Lucian, some 300 years after the siege, and it wasn't until it was rewritten by Anthemius of Trelles, another couple centuries later, when the first mention of burning glass appears. So the credibility of the story is in doubt, but it goes to show that the concept of using focused energy as a weapon has been around for thousands of years. What we're concerned with, though, are microwave weapons. Instead of using sun rays, these weapons use radio frequencies in the range of 300 megahertz to 300 gigahertz. Interestingly, the same range as cell phones. Some of the key advantages of microwaves for military purposes. They are effectively both invisible and silent, and they have a very flat trajectory, meaning they aren't affected by gravity, wind, and other atmospheric conditions like a projectile might be. For the most part, microwave weapons have been designed to be non-lethal. The best-known iteration of the technology is known as the active denial system. Or more informally, the heat ray. As we talked about before the break, microwaves create a heating effect, similar to the heating effect that occurs with cell phones and microwave ovens. 
However, ADS uses a much higher radio frequency of 95 gigahertz, which limits the heating effect to only penetrate the surface of the skin. ADS was intended for perimeter security and crowd control. It can effectively heat the skin to 111 degrees Fahrenheit. First degree burns occur at around 124 degrees. A test subject for the Air Force Research Laboratory described his experience like this, quote, for the first millisecond, it just felt like the skin was warming up. Then it got warmer and warmer and you felt like it was on fire. As soon as you're away from that beam, your skin returns to normal and there is no pain." End quote. ADS was first deployed in the war in Afghanistan in 2010, but it was not actually used in combat. There still remain some lingering questions about its effectiveness, especially in combat situations. And like cell phones, the jury is out as to whether there could be as yet unknown long-term health effects or whether it could in fact be lethal if misused. The technology is still being actively pursued though, and its developers are making deals with law enforcement for retooled mobile versions. A version is currently in use at the LA Sheriff Department's Pitches Detention Center to break up fights and riots. Well, there doesn't seem to be any question as to whether or not these weapons exist. It's proven fact. The next question is, what evidence do we have of these weapons being used without our knowledge or for nefarious purposes? In 1953, it was discovered that the U.S. Embassy in Moscow was being bombarded by microwave radiation ranging from 2.5 to 4 gigahertz within the same frequency range used by cell phones. But it was so low-powered, it could have never caused any heating effect, unlike the ADS system we just discussed. The source was traced to an apartment building 100 yards away. It was believed to be part of a listening device known as a passive cavity resonator. Effectively, it's just a resonant cavity, like the hollow body of a guitar or cello, paired with a small antenna activated by low-level microwave radiation. It's presumed the radio signal was meant to activate listening devices hidden within the embassy. But the unintended consequences were the health effects. There are reports that as much as a third of the embassy employees developed lymphocytosis, which causes an increased number of white blood cells. The employees also had an abnormally high cancer rate. But what is perhaps most intriguing is the uniformity of their symptoms. Nearly all complained of headache, fatigue, anxiety, memory loss, all common symptoms of what we previously described as microwave sickness. Whether these health effects were intended or not, the embassy was exposed to the radiation for 19 years, long after the U.S. found out about it. They chose to keep it a secret from the public, as well as the people that worked at the embassy. It's not clear exactly why they didn't say something after they discovered the radiation. There are some that believe U.S. officials chose to use their own staff as guinea pigs to study the effects of microwave sickness. Whether that's true or not, this technology does continue to be perfected and used today. In an eerily similar attack, earlier in 2018, workers at the U.S. Embassy in Cuba complained of headaches, nausea, fatigue, and dizziness, but with an added element. They recounted hearing loud, high-pitched sounds, ringing, buzzing, or grinding. This can be attributed to the Fry effect, or what's sometimes called the microwave auditory effect. Essentially, when microwaves hit the brain, 
they have the ability to trick the mind into perceiving sounds. Experts were skeptical at first, but most have come around to accept the theory that microwave weapons were responsible for the sonic attacks in Cuba, which left some of the embassy workers with concussion-like symptoms. So, I think we can call conspiracy theory number two confirmed. Ten out of ten. Microwave weapons exist and have been used on American citizens without their knowledge. While cell phones themselves haven't been used as weapons, as far as we know, it's fully within the realm of possibility that they could be. They do technically present this danger. I agree. A solid 10. And what's more, these microwave weapons are all based on the same basic technology used in cell phones. So while the mechanisms vary, it lends some credence to the idea that cell phone technology can have a profound and debilitating effect on the human brain. So if cell phone technology can be used to develop heat rays, sonic weapons, and high-tech listening devices, what else can it be used for? Coming up, we'll look at our third and final conspiracy theory. Are cell phones in fact part of a government-sponsored mind control plot? Now, back to the story. So far today, we've been delving deep into the little-known potential dangers of cell phones. Can they cause brain tumors? Possibly. Can they be harnessed for use as microwave weapons? Absolutely. Are they actually harming anyone? Unclear. Next up is conspiracy theory number three. Are cell phones in fact being used as mind control devices? As we're all well aware, we're asked to turn off our cell phones on flights because its electromagnetic emissions could interfere with the plane's electronics. Could the same be true for our brains? As we discussed before the break, we know for a fact that microwaves, like those used by our cell phones, can trick our brains into perceiving noises that aren't there. This could be used to achieve the ultimate and elusive goal of shadowy governments around the world. Mind control. Mind control has been a documented area of interest for the U.S. government since the 1940s. Many of you may be familiar with MKUltra, the CIA's program to research mind control in the 1950s and 60s. By using hypnosis and drugs such as LSD, they sought to put test subjects into a pliable state for interrogation purposes. They even went so far as trying to implant thoughts or ideas in their heads, calling upon them to act when triggered by a code word. The U.S. isn't the only interested country. In 1970, amateur radio operators across the world detected a strong signal, dubbed the woodpecker for its rhythmic tapping. The signal was later traced to the Duga radar array in Ukraine, one of Russia's early experiments with over-the-horizon radar. For the record, these are the same kind of microwaves used in cell phones. And scientists have posited that pulsed microwaves like these could be the easiest way to disrupt mental processes. The dimensions of the human head, scientists say, make it a fairly good antenna for picking up microwave signals. Hmm, that's not good news for us, I suppose. Well, let's return to the Fry effect, which we touched upon when talking about the sonic attacks on the Cuban embassy. 
Alan H. Fry, the scientist the effect was named for, was working at General Electric's Advanced Electronics Center in 1960. He stumbled on the effect by accident when another engineer from a nearby facility told him that he could hear his microwave beam's pulses. Intrigued, Mr. Fry went to the facility, and sure enough, he could hear it too. It sounded like zip, zip, zip. The science around how this works is still in dispute, but effectively, microwaves of certain frequencies hit the temporal lobe, which translates audiovisual input. The waves are then translated into sound as well. According to Mr. Fry's research, even deaf people could hear the false sounds from the microwaves, and it's no surprise that after his research was published, governments took notice, particularly the Soviets. Fry was invited to lecture at the Soviet Academy of Sciences. He was taken outside Moscow to a military base, where he got a first-hand glimpse into their psychotronic weapons research. The U.S. also took note, and they wanted to take it even further. Air Force scientists in Albuquerque, New Mexico, sought to beam not just sounds, but comprehensible speech into their test subjects' heads. The lead inventor said the research team had experimentally demonstrated that the signal is intelligible, meaning that the microwaves were able to produce intelligible speech. Their approach won a patent in 2002. The patent was assigned to the Air Force Secretary, which limited the technology's dissemination. But on the disclosure form, the first application listed was psychological warfare. But it's not known if this technology has ever been fully developed, much less utilized. There's no lack of online message boards and support groups filled with reports of people who have undergone government mind control experiments, including voice-to-skull speech transmission. It could be that this microwave mind control project, like MKUltra, will stay a secret for decades until the truth leaks out. But hearing voices in your head is also a telltale symptom of mental illness. For now, it's impossible to know whether these reports from conspiracy theorists are accurate or if it's only a shared delusion. Right, but whether or not these mind control programs currently exist, the scientific evidence seems to point to the fact that cell phones could, in fact, be used for mind control. Although the microwave mind control devices that have been developed are not exactly the same as cell phones, they do employ the same core technology. It is within the realm of possibility that someday in the future, our cell phones could be harnessed to broadcast thoughts into our minds. But is it happening right now? Probably not. So how do you rate this one? Zero out of 10? Well, I think there could be another way of looking at it. Even if mind control broadcasts are still science fiction, I do believe that the underlying health effects described by microwave sickness, fatigue, memory loss, and headaches, could be very real. And as MKUltra researchers believed, the power of suggestion relies on first putting your subject into a pliable mental state. So could cell phones and their accompanying electromagnetic radiation already be disrupting our mental processes and putting us into that pliable state? I'll call that a three out of 10. Cell phones, by their very design, have trained us to become reliant upon them. And research has proven that each buzz and beep delivers small serotonin bumps to our brains. I would go so far as to argue that might be a form of mind control in and of itself. 
Cell phone addiction has become a recognized disorder. A recent study revealed that millennials check their phones upwards of 150 times a day. You have to ask, are we controlling our phones or are they controlling us? We've covered a wide range of conspiracy theories today, but where do we stand? What is most plausible? Well, despite a lot of anecdotal evidence, there's little scientific proof that cell phones cause cancer. But that's not to say there couldn't be other health effects that are not yet fully understood. As for conspiracy theory number two, the development of microwave weapons is a documented fact, and they've potentially already been used on unsuspecting civilians, such as in the Cuban embassy attack. Finally, cell phones are probably not being used as mind control devices, at least not yet. But depending on how we're defining mind control, our current emotional and psychological dependence on cell phones could qualify. So, which of these theories is most credible? I think we're both in agreement here. Theory number two. Absolutely. And not just because we know that microwave weapons already exist, but in a way, the fact that they exist at all gives some credence to this episode's other theories. The radiation used by cell phones definitely has some potential to be harmful. That's right. Through some subtle tweaks, the seemingly innocuous technology that we all carry in our pockets can be transformed into a frighteningly powerful weapon. And for that reason, even though some of these other theories haven't been proven, we should all look at our phones a little more closely. Even though there's no conclusive evidence that cell phones are dangerous, who knows what we might discover a few decades down the road. But by that point, it might already be too late. The time for more research, regulation, and caution is now, before the potential dangers of cell phones become an international crisis. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, leave us a five-star review. Tell us your favorite Conspiracy Theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for more conspiracy theories. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Nick Miller and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. <laughs>